Hello, greetings. We're so thankful for your interest in spiritual things, and we're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And let's continue our exploration into the word of Yahweh as given to Hosea, with Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1 through chapter 7 and verse 16. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will blind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know Yahweh. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. But like Adam they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem, they commit villainy. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to Yahweh their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, for they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt." As we've been exploring in Hosea, in Hosea 1 and verse 1, we're told that the word of Yahweh came to Hosea in the days of Uzziah through Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the day of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. This is the period of calm before the storm. Jeroboam ruled over a politically and economically prosperous Israel in the middle of the 8th century. His son Zechariah 
would be assassinated, and Israel would then endure five kings in 30 years, only one of them dying naturally. The Assyrians captured all but Samaria in 732, and the rump state was eliminated in 722. And so within 30 years of the end of Jeroboam's life, all these things would take place. The people thought that they were in a period of uh, economic prosperity and, and political prosperity that would last, but it wouldn't. And Hosea would live to see it all, and he warns them in advance, uh, but they do not heed what he has to say. In the first three chapters, we under saw how uh, Yahweh called Hosea to take a wife of Hordom, have children of Hordom, how his children were Sinax about God's coming judgment at Jezreel, that he would have no longer have mercy on his people, and they would not be his people. He brought a charge against his adulterous wife Israel, uh, that uh, all the Israelites were acting as if Baal was the one giving them the produce, when it was really Yahweh who provided it, and uh, they lavished gift on their idols, did not give the service due to God, that he would come in judgment against them, but at the later days he would uh, come back and restore her to herself, to himself, uh, having hope for no mercy and reestablish not my people as a people of God. And this is demonstrated in chapter 3 when God calls Hosea to take back his wife um, as Israel would be taken back by God. In chapters 4 and 5, we have an indictment established. Israel is full of blood, destroyed by lack of knowledge. The priests are condemned and the people act as pagans in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, we see how judgment is rendered, that Israel is saturated in idolatry and will be destroyed. They're going to seek Yahweh in that day, but he's not going to be there for them. And so in chapter 6 and 7, we see these continued exhortations Yahweh is providing through Hosea. Uh, to his people Israel, who proved to be covenant transgressors. Chapter 6 begins with three verses. That's a moment of hope after this indictment and judgments that have come in chapters 4 and 5, and before we again return to the theme of, of, of judgment and indictment in a different way, where Hosea imagines Israel seeking to return to God, that confidence is given that Yahweh tore apart, but he will now heal. That if after two days he will revive and will raise us up on the third day. Now, this is a very frequently used Hebraism. The idea of there's today, there's tomorrow, and then the day after tomorrow is the third day. And so a lot of times you talk about the day after tomorrow as a way of talking about the future in Exodus 19.11, Leviticus 19.6, and in 1 Samuel 20.12. This informs when Jesus says, uh, to tell Herod that fox in Luke 13:32 that uh, today and tomorrow I will work here and then uh, the day after tomorrow I'll go to Jer and all Jerusalem and all the things that are written of me will have their fulfillment. That idea is it's may not going to literally be in 72 hours as much as in the future. Hezekiah, for instance, is healed on the third day as well in 2 Kings 20 and verse 5 and verse 12. And so, uh, Hosea has future Israel maintain a confidence that if after this judgment time. Uh, so today thing is a day of warning, tomorrow is a day of judgment, but the day after tomorrow will be a day of restoration uh, for the people of God. But no doubt, Hosea is also, in a way, prophesying the resurrection of Jesus on the third day after having been struck down which is a constant theme in Matthew 16:21, Luke 9:22 and other passages. Yahweh, in fact, Israel should go and know Yahweh and follow Yahweh because he is reliable. He's as consistent as the rising sun as a latter rain, the rain that falls near the time of harvest that provides the final growth for crops. 
Through the rest of chapter 6, however, there's a rhetorical appeal about how they are covenant transgressors and things of that nature. What is Yahweh going to do with Ephraim and Jude? Well, their goodness is ephemeral. Vanishes quickly where it appears, like the morning cloud that's there, but then fades away and there's nothing left to it. The, the dew that you wake up, there's moisture, and then all of a sudden there is none. And therefore, Yahweh's going to cut them down and kill them by the words of his mouth uttered from the prophets. His judgment goes forth as light. This is the antecedent to the idea of the word of God is living and active in Hebrews 4.12. That out of Jesus' mouth will come a sword, uh, and it will judge the nations in Revelation 19 and verse 21. This is also likely the basis of what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, that um, the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he make this judgment? Well, in verse 6, a very powerful, important verse, that Yahweh prefers goodness, not sacrifice, knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. This is not merely a message in Hosea. This is very similar to what Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. It's a message in the Psalms, Psalm 50 and 51, Proverbs 21, 3. Isaiah makes it a prominent feature in Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. And we see it in Jeremiah 7, 20 and 26, and also in Amos 5, 21 and 27. So multiple ways this is attested, and not merely in the written prophets, but also in the words mouth of Samuel, also in the uh, wisdom literature. Now, many wish to suggest that the prophets were against the sacrificial system in a temple cult. Uh, the idea there's this antagonism between these two. But that's an excessive claim, and they'll be taking... Yes, there's uh, the statement, uh, not sacrifice rather than burnt offerings. Uh, that's hyperbole. We shouldn't press that too far. Because Hosea is not trying to make an absolute or binary message. The problem is Israel made offerings but didn't actually know God or live like it. And Jesus will make a similar uh, condemnation of the Pharisees. In fact, we'll quote this very same verse in Matthew 9.13. Um, similarly in 12 and verse 7. And the problem remained pervasive in Israel. To focus on certain objective acts like sacrifice and to act like, Okay, well I've sacrificed Yahweh and I must be good now. When in fact... Yahweh was much rather interested in the love of the people and loyalty, covenant loyalty, which is steadfast love, Hebrew chesed, and uh, the knowledge of God. He'd rather have them know of him than to go through all these extra rituals that they were not doing with any real substantive heart. But Israel, yes, Israel did not do that. And like Adam, they are uh, covenant transgressors. They've acted treacherously against Yahweh. Now, Adam here, Adam in Hebrew can mean man or humankind, but that's unlikely because we see throughout the text, covenant is made with specific people, not generally. Uh, yes, there is a covenant God makes with Noah that extends all humankind. There's a covenant God makes with all men through Jesus Christ, but one is far before and one is not yet here. Uh, this is the one time that God's communication with Adam is spoken of in terms of covenant, and so there is that issue. Now, covenant is Hebrew berit, and it's an agreement that outlines a reciprocal relationship in the ancient Near Eastern world. A lot of times it's talked about in terms of a suzerain-vassal treaty, where there's a stronger king called the suzerain, and a client king known as the vassal. And so the stronger king will require the client king to do certain things, and the client king will get the benefits of support and protection by the stronger king. Um, marriage is also seen as a covenant in Malachi 2, 14 through 16. This idea of covenant is very common in the ancient Near Eastern world in the Bronze Age and early Iron Age. 
And it becomes the predominant means or what metaphorical vehicle, if you'd like, uh, where God interacts with humanity. It's the one with Noah, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all Israel, David, and now in Christ. As you can see in Hebrews 7 through 9 and in the relevant passages in the Old Testament. Now, covenant transgression is very serious business with serious consequences. And the dire nature of these circumstances presented. Gilead is stained with blood, priests murder on the road, evil is pervasive, a whoredom of idolatry, Israel is defiled. Uh, again, you can. How much hyperbole involved is, is hard to establish, but we can definitely see this is bad. And it's even being done by the religious authorities, maybe even in the name of religion. This is not healthy or good. This is a, a society that's decadent, depraved, and on the uh, road to ruin. And the section here ends with this harvest appointed for Judah when Yahweh brings back his captive people. It could be positive, where it's blessings to prosperity, but it's more likely negative that uh, Judah is going to be punished and have its own form of exile. When we turn to chapter 7, we see uh, condemnation of, of, of many things going on in Israel, and specifically uh, in the terms of the government. The first seven verses, uh, we see a corrupt government. Government. Um, if Yahweh would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim and the evil deeds of Samaria is made evident. Uh, God, it's, what it means is that uh, you see that there's all this evil going on, there's thieves breaking in, banditry are all around. Uh, they all act as if God's not watching or God doesn't do anything about it. But God does consider and remember all their evil. And he gets to the point in verse 3, that by their evil, uh, they make the king glad, by the, the princes by their treasury. And so, the court is pleased. This is, this is not being done without knowledge. And so you have some kind of you know, banter going on that's allowed. You know, we could think of maybe craven stealing going on. But it also could be oppression of the poor or other people through the levers of government as well. And he speaks of them as adulterers, a heated oven that's not stoked when the bread cooks. This is kind of a metaphor for apostasy. Um, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, brought forth all this idolatry in Israel with the golden calves and changing everything. And so there's that heat. It all got started up there and nobody changed it. It started up and it just kept burning and burning and burning. Now, the king is surrounded by drunks and mockers in verses 5 uh, through 7. These guys uh, maybe are cynics, maybe they're yes-men. There's all kinds of intrigue in the court. It's burning hot like an oven, and in fact, all the rulers are in consumed by this intrigue. This is a portrayal of a paralyzed and corrupt government focused on internal palatial intrigues or the enrichment of a few to the neglect of the many that actual governance is not being done. Yahweh is not honored. They're not appealing to Yahweh. And therefore, all that awaits is judgment. Verses 8 through 16, there's uh, the same kind of theme, but there's a little shift. Israel is seen, Ephraim is seen as a cake not turned, condemned for mixing with the nations. Its strength is consumed and it's more aged than it believes. Now, an unturned cake is one that's uncooked on one side and burnt on another. And so Israel presumes itself strong and unified. It has this idea of itself, but really its glory days are past. Its power is sapped by its neighbors and its time is coming to an end. And it refuses to come to the grips with this reality. And their pride, in fact, is testifying to its face and they've not returned to Yahweh. In fact, uh, in chapter 5 and verse 5, a very similar message is given that the pride of Israel testifies to his face. 
that Israel's trying to hold itself up. Again, we understand and can see that Hosea is speaking truth about current events, but the problem is, is that the 30 years afterward that will lead to this rapid decline is not known to the people. The people can presume as we tend to do as people, that everything is going to continue to go well. They think that their standing will be the same or will improve as time goes on. They do not they downplay the warning signs on the horizon. And therefore they're not turning back to God. They're not turning to God. They don't feel the need to. And they don't need his strength. And so instead we see in verses eleven and twelve uh, that they're, Ephraim's like a silly dove without sense. They called Egypt and go to Assyria. They're trying to engage in foreign policy with the major powers around them. And Yahweh's going to capture her as with a net and bring them down and discipline them because of what they're doing here, trying to engage in foreign policy as if that's going to give them strength, that's going to preserve them in the day of trouble. There's a woe that Yahweh pronounces against Israel. They have wandered and transgressed against him, even though he was going to redeem them. Who would love to redeem them? They have spoken lies against him. They go through all these elaborate rituals. They gash themselves. They, but, you know, they wail upon their beds, but they're not actually turning back to Yahweh. They're going through all these dramatic things, but they're not actually repenting. And you can even hear the distress. That Yahweh has taught and strengthened Israel, but they've devised mischief against him. They don't really repent to him. And they're like a treacherous bow that will misdirect the arrow if it doesn't it break. And their princes will die in war and they're going to be held in derision in Egypt. This possibly might be talking about Israel will be remembered in Egypt. That was an unreliable foreign policy power partner. But it's more likely an evocation of a theme of exile. It's not talking specifically about the idea they're going to go to Egypt. But Egypt would have been an idea of exile. So when they go into exile, they're going to be held in derision. And so it's not just Israel's domestic governance that's flawed. It's foreign policies and even greater disaster. Because they don't trust in Yahweh. But they're trying to do these foreign policy machinations between the two great powers. And ironically, probably intentionally, that's what's going to lead to their destruction. They're trying to play these two powers off each other. And in the end, Assyria will just come through and mow them down. And so the Israelites are condemned as covenant transgressors in, these, in this section. Yahweh would restore and heal them, but they don't turn to him. They provide themselves on their heritage. They're consumed with palace intrigue. They trust in foreign policy machinations, and which are all going to fail. And thus their end is decreed. So what can we make of this? It doesn't take long to notice, I hope, as we've gone through Hosea, that the prophecies are really the same thing over and over again, dressed in different garb. Israel is guilty of pernicious idolatry and they risk severe judgment. But when we look at how that message is dressed up, it's very instructive. It shows how Yahweh is trying to find a way to exhort Israel in a way that maybe the people would listen. Maybe if this not way, this way, then we'll try another way. And so we saw in the first three chapters, hope, marriage, adultery, whoredom, and restoration. Yahweh is portrayed there as the new-reaved husband. In chapters 4 and 5, there's a courtroom-like indictment and judgment where Yahweh is prosecutor and judge. And now we see over and over again the idea of a wounded nation looking in all the wrong places for strength when Yahweh would be their healer. That's also at the end of chapter 5, into 6 and 7 as well. 
that Israel would learn, have to learn by experience that they can't trust in themselves, they can't trust in foreign policy, then maybe they could be reconciled and restored. It's very important to see that God would be our healer as well, that God, in fact, will heal all of those who come to them in Matthew 9, 11 through 13. And that we do well to learn from the example of Israel, that when we're wounded, you know, a lot of times people are wounded, a lot of times we go through distress in life. And in our lives, when we go through distress, if we know there's problems, we go everywhere to try to solve it, but to God. We try to find ways of dealing with it on a worldly level. We don't take it to God, when in fact, only God is going to be able to get us through it. Because whatever things we try to do in this world are going to fail. Only by putting our trust in God and to find our healing in Him will we find true peace and true satisfaction. Another prominent theme throughout this section is Israel's great confidence in itself that it maintained delusions of grandeur. And again, we, we understand why in the days of Jeroboam II there was a renewed strength in Israel, a strength that had not been there even in the days of Jehu. You had to go back to the days of Ahab to find such strength, maybe even before. And it's prosperous and successful, and that always kind of boosts a nation, always kind of gives pride to a nation. Um, Israel sees itself as young, thriving, and strong. It's expecting a lot more than 30 years. The problems that existed were swept under the rug. Whatever strains existed in the system were explained away or addressed by other means. They did not trust in Yahweh, rely on his strength. Their character is evident. They rebelled because of their arrogance and their trust in themselves. Now, there's no doubt that when a lot of Israelites would look back, they would have perceived the ruin to which they were blinded in the moment. Uh, the reign of Jeroboam II looks very different 40 years later than it did in the moment. But that's something that is going to be true for everybody at every stage in history. Because in our lives, we can also easily suffer from delusions of grandeur. Where it's very easy to believe that we are strong when we're actually weak. We are easily tempted to gloss over difficulties and problems that may eventually consume us. And it manifests in our lives a character that's not in compliance with God, but that we're really trusting in ourselves. Now, how many times do we look back in our lives and we can see a ruin to which we were blinded at earlier moments where we could just see that we were heading down a wrong track and, and the warning signs were there, we refused to heed it. And that's why we cannot allow our pride to testify to our face the way that God indicted Israel. That we need, in fact, turn to God to trust in Him and to recognize our weakness so we... God can strengthen us that we can endure the day of difficulty. We do well to kind of absorb that lesson that Paul had to learn in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that it's when we're weak that we're really strong because we're putting our trust in God and God is able to be magnified through us. It's very compelling when we look at uh, Hosea 6, 1 through 6 and, and Matthew 9, 9 through 13. There's very, very strong parallels. In Matthew chapter 9, we read the following. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hosea would hew the people down with the word of Yahweh in his mouth. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh, and he would slay them. Yahweh would heal. Jesus is the physician here. And even Jesus recognizes and puts that together here. He talks about healing, and then he talks about this very verse in Hosea, just like there's healing in Hosea 6, 1 through 3, and then there's this condemnation in verses 4 through 6. But the people are stuck in religion that honors the motions, but does not contain the substance of the character of God. If we're honest with ourselves, this is the difficulty with religion throughout time. It's easier to focus on the externals, the superficial, that which is objective, and to miss the heart of God and what really represents true service to Him. And a large reason for this is that humans like to get by on C-grade religion. What I mean by that is doing just enough to get by. Think about life. How many times are people tempted not to really do the best they can, but just enough to get by? That's why C-grade, you know, in school, that somebody's doing just enough to keep passing or just enough to pull out that C. They aren't really invested in the class. They're not really interested in really learning. They just want to get the credential to move on. And people turn to religion and try to do that same thing, where they think, well, how can I do just enough to get by? How can I make sure I'm saved? But I don't have to expend any more effort than I absolutely have to. And the sacrificial system, if you think about it, is really an ul the ultimate magnet for C-grade religion. As long as offerings are made, you can say God is happy and we can get on with our lives. And Christianity only needs a few modifications to have something very similar. As long as you go to the assembly, do the five acts of service there, God is happy we can get on with our lives. That's the attitude that so many have thinking that, well, salvation is really just all about what staying out of hell, making sure you get to heaven by doing enough things that God won't condemn you. That has never been the goal. That has never been the attitude. That has never been what is commended in Scripture. Because God has always wanted mercy, not sacrifices, and knowledge of God, not offerings. This doesn't mean that Israelites aren't to sacrifice. Likewise, it shouldn't mean that we should ignore and neglect the assembly and the things that we do within it. But God is not out to get some stuff from us. God is not to be placated like some pagan demon. He needs to be loved and trusted. You think about that. It's ancient paganism. Fearing the divine and, and therefore I need to placate. I need to keep the gods away from me so they don't hurt me. Or I need the blessing of a, of a god now so I need to sacrifice to make him happy with me. That remains in modern man. This desire to keep God at arm's length unless you need him for a moment and then keep him back at arm's length. And it needs to be purged in Christianity because the goal of God in Christ is that we will be one. That we will be one with each other and we'll be one with God. We can only be one with God if we strive for, to be like God in holiness, in love and grace and mercy. 1 John 17, 20-23, 1 John 2, 3-6. As it is with Israel, so it is with Christians. If we truly know who God is, and we know what God is about, we're going to see that C-grade religion isn't possible. 
You can't just do enough just to get by. You can't come in with the mentality that you're just trying to get some credentials so you don't have a negative consequence. And you're not even going to think that's the way to go forward. Instead, we're going to give ourselves over to God and his purposes so that God can be glorified in us and that we become the kind of people for whom heaven is heaven and who can enjoy the resurrection of life because we have knowledge of God and what is good and what is commendable. If we content ourselves with C-grade religion, and we look at Christianity and the Church in terms of what we can get out of it, we're looking for entertainment and distraction, then we don't really know God, as revealed in Jesus. We're of the world. We know that we should do better. But we are not willing to do what is required to honor and glorify God in that circumstance. There's no hope for those practicing C-grade religion. There's no hope for those who want to keep God at arm's length. That's rebellion. So God stands ready and willing to heal those who are wounded and to turn to him, to strengthen those who are weak and who turn to him, to redeem and sustain those who seek to know God and to show love, grace, and mercy as he did. That's the whole message of the New Testament, John 3.16 and so many other passages. But those who are really of the world, who just want to squeak by with a bare minimum, who rather look at God as kind of the spiritual 911, uh, to be called upon only in an emergency, and otherwise not involved in life, are consumed in their pride. They're going to go the way of the world and of all flesh, like Israel did, and will incur the same type of strong judgment as Israel did. And therefore we do well to learn from the failing of Israel. That we should not be haughty in our own sight. We need to recognize our dependence upon God, to learn of Him, to be healed and strengthened by Him, to seek His purposes, and to be saved in God and Christ. And that's what we hope for you. And we're so glad again that you've spent time with us. If you'd like to explore more, as we've talked about Hosea, if you'd like to talk more about how to uh, follow God uh, fully, if you'd like to join us in a Bible study or an assembly, or you have some questions for us, any way we can be of service, you can learn more about us at the Venice Church of Christ by going on our website at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, you may do so at deverbovitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. We're again so thankful for your time today. We hope that you've been encouraged by this, and we hope and pray that you have a great day.